0: Hi, this is Chad Dull. Welcome to my Poverty Informed podcast. Maybe takes off the rose-colored glasses a little bit, but also might point you in a direction. Uh, I've shared before that probably what I'm best at in this work is changing people's points of view, mindsets, and a little bit of the discourse around people in poverty. Uh, But I've also tried to find some concrete actions uh, to give to folks, um, which has never been maybe my first best thing. Um, But I always took the feedback that I should work on that pretty seriously. And uh, last December, um, I wrote about uh, someone giving me that exact challenge and kind of my response to it. It's on my brain as my opportunities to go out and speak about this work are growing. And I wanna make sure uh, that we're not just shifting the discourse or inspiring, um, but we're actually at least pointing people in a direction and then people who are better with concrete action than me can take this thing and run. Uh, So I'd like to share this week a piece I wrote in December of 2018. Um, while I was still working at my last college called poverty-informed practice in higher education. Just tell us what to do. The term ended December 17th but before I left for a brief period of respite I had a long conversation with a faculty member I respect. I was sharing some really good news about our increase in credit for prior learning when this faculty member said Chad I know you think we aren't on board but we are. I was flabbergasted and had to know more. While I had certainly felt resistance to my push to make it the most poverty-informed division in America, for the most part, I felt like people were trying sincerely. In fact, I thought we were rallying around a cause in ways we hadn't in years. But now, someone I respected told me things might not be what I thought. So I was grateful we could sit down for the better part of an hour and talk it through. By the end of our conversation, what she meant was clearer to me. She felt I might be overemphasizing inspiration and under-emphasizing how we were to do what we do. I took the feedback as offered. It's a version of something I've heard before, which is roughly, if you tell us what you want, we will do it. Now, to be honest, that isn't usually what people actually want in my experience, but I think this person was sincere. Uh, she was asking for concrete steps, and although I thought I'd provided some, She was telling me it wasn't always easy to know where to go. So today is my next attempt to define what I'm trying to do, and I'd like to share what I put together. Several months ago, when I discussed declaring our movement, I said that it was important to be concise and compelling. Now, concise has never been my best thing, but I'm working on it, and that's evidenced by the mantra that I use, every barrier that can be removed should be removed. That mantra has been very useful in helping make decisions. But the feedback I got that day was saying we needed even more clarity on how. The college president I worked for at the time was a big fan of visual management, and I had been trying to enhance my skills in that area. So I created uh, a probably oversimplified version of very complex work, but I've worked with it to this day. um, And I just call it a poverty-informed triangle. Uh, It certainly borrows liberally from Maslow and Bloom, um, but it does show the things I believe are essential to designing classes and services that achieve the goal of moving students out of poverty. At a fundamental level, there are three principles, meeting basic needs, creating belonging, and accelerating progress towards goals. Uh, Let me tell you more about that in action. In the interest of clarity, let's try to describe what a poverty-informed classroom inside a poverty-informed college looks like. Basic needs are easiest to understand and sometimes hardest to take care of. For me, it means that no one goes to class hungry. It means there is always easily accessible food available with no restrictions and no judgment. So at my old college, we had it in classrooms, offices, and the lobby. We encouraged staff to partake as well because food is relational and creates community, which bleeds into creating belonging. Beyond daily hunger issues, we heeded the words of Dr. Sarah goldrick Grab when she said you don't have to be a social worker, but you better know one. We housed a workforce development agency right inside our department, and our staff worked hard to be knowledgeable about community resources. Now, from my point of view, the biggest danger in this part of poverty-informed work is the tendency to outsource responsibility for meeting basic needs. You know, just make a referral. Now, while referrals are often appropriate, it can't be just telling someone help is available. Poverty-informed work is relationship-based, and when we are at our best, we actively connect students to the resources, in person if possible. This also helps us follow Dr. Donna Beagle's advice to develop empathy for the experience of living in the crisis of poverty, as well as respect for the strength and resourcefulness students develop because of it. These relationships are key to creating a sense of belonging. For those who are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know that belonging sits near the base, just above the basic needs related to survival and safety. Creating belonging is essential to poverty-informed practice. Our students in the crisis of poverty often have relied on strong relationships to navigate their lives. And if we can invite them in and develop relationships with them, we start to leverage this amazing quality. A focus on their strengths begins to build their self-efficacy and a vision of themselves as college students. Unfortunately, my experience says there are fundamental mismatches between the stereotypical college campus and the real college students we serve. That means not only do we not create belonging as well as we should, we often do the opposite. Unintentionally, I hope. Dr. Beagle teaches that the context of poverty teaches a worldview that's different than the context of something based on middle-class values like a college. To us in the college, that means we must meet people where they are and expose them to possibilities. I would go even further and say you must create trust, because so many prior experiences will teach students from poverty they are intruders on campus. Teachers create belonging through a level of self-disclosure that humanizes them, and they create belonging by listening and validating their students' experiences. Teachers create belonging by knowing your name and your story rather than retreating to an office between classes. People feel belonging if you show interest in them and not just interest in fixing them. Policy and procedures also create belonging or exclusion and should be examined regularly to see if they support students or penalize them unnecessarily. One of the ongoing issues we struggled with was how to handle student attendance. Stringent attendance requirements don't seem to acknowledge the complications of student lives and therefore aren't poverty-informed, but balancing the need to be in class with the reality of a crisis arising over a full term is always a struggle. One solution is acceleration. Students in poverty are in crisis, and it is often an audacious act of courage just across our threshold. We know that without a poverty-informed approach, their odds of success decline dramatically. We know lives can be violently disrupted by things that are just annoyances when you're in the middle class. And we know the longer we ask people to wait for something, the higher the odds of disruption are. So we need to move people to meaningful learning as quickly as possible. Hopefully, learning includes an economic payoff that increases stability and gives students more breathing room. One of our most powerful strategies was Credit for Prior Learning. Credit for Prior Learning actually touches all three sides of the poverty-informed triangle. CPL, the acronym for Credit for Prior Learning, grants credit for low or no cost, which helps with basic needs. CPL acknowledges the wealth of experience students bring with them from their life. It creates belonging and belief from moment one by making students' lives count rather than something they're escaping from. CPL is strengths-based and moves people in the quickest way possible to being a student and changing economic reality. Now, outside of CPL, we looked for every chance to create the smallest piece of meaningful learning we could. So when it was completed, the student had it moving forward. When I left, we were in the process of challenging ourselves to develop competency-based options that aren't bound by time, but by standards. Um, I hope that that work continues. So I'm not sure this podcast would meet the request perfectly to just tell us what to do. But I do hope it gives a pretty good outline of some ways to move toward being poverty-informed. My lens is education, obviously, but these principles seem to go across industries and agencies. In fact, I've been invited to speak at health summits, Workforce Investment Opportunity Act grant summits, and in the public service sector or in the nonprofit sector. I think these concepts go across those sectors. You see, if we're committed to helping people move forward, our odds of doing the right thing go up. If we can find ways to meet basic needs while creating confidence and belonging, while at the same time moving moving people toward economic stability rapidly, I think we're on the right track. And underlying all this work must be a resolute belief in the people we serve and a suspension of any judgment based on rules we hold that don't make sense in their context. We need everyone. Let's not lose people because we can't relate and communicate.